Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. My guest on this week's show readily admits that her comedy is not for everyone. But this is her third time on the podcast, so you could probably guess that it's definitely for me. My mom tried to follow me on Instagram recently, and I blocked her immediately. (laughs) It felt like that moment in Jurassic Park where they learn how to unlock doors. (laughs) She couldn't be here tonight because my comedy's not for everyone. (laughs) I love my mom. We get along great. Um, when I first came out as a comedian, (laughs) she treated the news like there had been a death in the family. She said, I'd rather you be gay, because at least that's something you can't control. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Jenna Friedman from her recent Peacock stand-up special, Lady Killer. So Jenna and I go way back on this podcast to her first appearance on our sixth episode in April of 2019, when she was promoting her criminally underrated adult swim show, Soft Focus. When she returned in 2021, it was as an Oscar nominee for her role as one of the screenwriters on Sasha Baron Cohen's Borat subsequent movie film. And now she's back once more to talk about her new book, which I absolutely loved, called Not Funny. It's sort of a memoir, kind of a book of essays about comedy, and despite its title, is often hilarious. But it is also a close examination of many of the big cultural conversations happening in and around the comedy community that I love talking about on this show. So I could not have been happier to welcome Jenna back on the podcast to get into all of it. And I can tell you now that she did not hold back. Here's me with Jenna Friedman. Well, it's great to have you back, Jenna. Thank you. It's great to be back, Matt. <laughs> so you were here in, in 2019, one of our very first episodes uh, for Soft Focus. And that's when I coined you the feminist Sasha Baron Cohen, if you remember. Oh, and I then, remember. Then you were here in 2021 for Indefensible, when I believe Not- you coined yourself the hipster Nancy Grace. Yeah, people got weird about that. Oh, I, yeah? I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I think people thought that you coined it. Oh, and no, that was or... straight out of your mouth. Thank you. I I am proud to wear that badge. Um, so I don't know. Now you're here for your new book, Not Funny. Do you have any, uh, should we come up with something together, a new descriptor for you? Sure. Anything uh... come to mind? <laughs> oh, and you think about it, Matt. Um... Maybe the something David Sedaris? I don't know. <laughs> the not funny David Sedaris. <laughs> <laughs> That'll go over well. <laughs> That's good. Um, well, yeah, I, I messaged you recently because I, I just totally devoured your book over a weekend uh, a few weeks ago and and absolutely loved it. I think it's it's so good and and so funny on so many levels, despite the despite the title, not funny. Um, Thank and you. And it's just a really a great look into you know what has been a, a 
pretty fascinating uh, career for you uh, so far um, and in comedy, and, and you really get into a lot of the issues that we talk about on this show. So yeah, I thought we could start by reading an excerpt from the book. Uh, this is from the very beginning, the prologue. Um, so yeah, just uh, jump right in. Okay, great. Whenever anyone asks what inspired me to go into comedy, my answer is always the same. 9-11. I know it may not be the most likable way to start off, but it's true. Watching people jump to their deaths on live TV just as I was about to enter my first year of college had a traumatizing effect on me and my entire generation. It made me realize that life is short and random and sometimes tragic and that I didn't want to die in a business suit. Funny stuff, eh? Growing up in the 90s, I watched a ton of comedy on TV, but the idea of pursuing it as a career never crossed my mind. There were no artists in my family. My parents were always very loving and supportive, but thankfully not enough to blunt my comedic edge. Years ago, at my grandma's funeral, I was comforting my mourning mother when a friend of my grandma's approached us and said, It's so nice that Frida got to know all of her grandchildren as adults. In her deep state of grief, my mother looked up, and without even missing a beat, she smirked. Not Jenna. Jenna is not yet an adult. I was 28 years old at the time, living in New York and bartending to pay the bills, because my multiple nightly stand-up shows that paid performers and drink tickets did not provide the most reliable income stream. Since I didn't have a normal, stable job, my mother didn't consider me an adult. The comments stung, but at least to her immense sadness, my mom could still make people who weren't her daughter laugh. My mom is effortlessly funny, and when I was growing up, she often used humor to cope with life's darkest moments. A lot of the comedy I do today stems from my attempt to do the same, to find levity and tragedy, and in doing so, to lighten the mood of anyone listening. It usually works, but sometimes it doesn't. Like that time I bombed on live network TV. I wish I could roll the clip for you now. I looked great. I still had that Futures female glow and Rosie the Riveter red NARS lipstick to match. I was even wearing all white for the first time in my life, if you don't count my sister's wedding, JK, and dressed like a hipster suffragette. It was November 8, 2016, and I was in front of a live studio audience and the world for Stephen Colbert's live election night special. I was invited to be a guest commentator on Stephen's panel that night, specifically to react in real time to whoever the winner might be. I almost want to laugh at the naivete of the producer who prepped me for the segment. He had called that morning to go over the format and answer any of my questions. When I demurely asked, what if Trump wins? We both laughed nervously. As a person who had been alive and on Twitter for most of 2016, I had some reservations about the election outcome. But there was so much excitement in the air that morning. Between standing in a line wrapped around an entire city block to vote for our nation's first female president, to the adrenaline rush of preparing for my first late-night appearance, I really didn't want to entertain the thought that Hillary might not win. Six years earlier, I had written for The Late Show with David Letterman in that same iconic Ed Sullivan theater. I had always dreamed of one day being invited on the show as a comedian or as a guest promoting some cool project. Cut to election night, and there I was living my dream, which was slowly descending into a nightmare as Stephen, the other panelists, and I watched Florida turn red in horror. As it became increasingly clear that an unregistered sex offender was about to become president of the United fucking States of America, the men on the panel seemed surprisingly optimistic, confidently stating that Hillary could still pull through and consoling the crowd with positive aphorisms about the amazing things women have accomplished throughout history. 
Even as I type this, I can feel a wave of nausea wash over me. In that moment, I was speechless and shocked. I could see the writing on the not-yet-built wall. Trump was going to win. Well, I love that because, you know, I remember watching that moment and um, you say in the in the prologue that you wish you could play a clip. Um, so we'll actually play a clip now uh, for the listeners of, of what happened next. Janet, you're a woman. Everything's on you right now. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, uh, do, do you think that you can still pull it out? Do you, still, do you have any hope left? Um, do you want my TV-friendly answer? No, no, I just want to know how you feel. There's, it feels like an asteroid has just smacked into our democracy. It is so scary and sad and heartbreaking, and I just wish I could be funny. Get your abortions now, because <laughs> we're going to be fucked. Oh, I was so hysterical then, remember? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and that was, did you get, was that, was that the feedback you got that night? Why are you being so alarmist? No, I, I and I talk about this too. I, I got a ton of death threats, more than I've ever gotten in my life from like pro-life people, which again, I and I joke about this, that it feels like progress to get a death threat from someone who says that they are pro-life. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I, I, I don't want to criticize men because that doesn't, pay the bills (laughs) but i did get a lot of and i think a lot of women got a lot of it's gonna be okay it's gonna be okay don't worry this is a democracy we live it and uh, a friend of mine told me an anecdote a couple days after she runs a really cool political nonprofit. She had a story that happened to her in the 90s for the internet where she was on a flight, I think, from Seattle to San Francisco. And the plane, there was a moment where the plane went into free fall and they all thought they were going to die. And she said that she was, she and the other women on the plane were crying and holding hands. And she turned to see a guy in the row across from her just quietly doing a crossword puzzle. <laughs> And I always think about that as just, and I don't want to, you know, gender is a construct and we're all on a spectrum, but just in terms of, I think about that all the time. I think about our uh, collective response to uh, Trump becoming president and how it was gendered in a way. Uh, Female friends I know were crying and worrying and communicating and the guys were like it's gonna be fun <laughs> and i think about that like that is like the same thing as like a plane being in free fall um yeah i mean and then of course you were proven right on so many levels including to this day when you know abortion restrictions continue to escalate um which can't feel good to be proven right in this it doesn't. In that sense it doesn't at all it doesn't at all people think it's remotely vindicating but it's not at all. It's just, it just sucks. Yeah. Why did you decide to start the book um, with that night at on the, on the Late Show? It's weird to think about, to look back on your career as you still feel like you're in it and you're hustling all the time and you're going to keep hustling. But I have been doing this for 15 years and that felt like my coming out party, which isn't the right <laughs> but I was behind the scenes for so much of my career. And I had just left The Daily Show when John retired. And this was the first thing I did after that as a comedic personality myself in a kind of big way. 
Um, so it felt like this moment where I was no longer going to be a behind the scenes person. I was going to be a personality in front of the camera. And then I just botched it so hard. (laughs) Well, I don't know if you botched it or the country botched it and you were there. The country botched it. And I was there with the cameras on us. And all I could think was don't cry in front of your coworkers because it was such an emotional moment. But I at least... And I have to always contextualize it instead of saying as women, it's really as my generation of women, we were really taught, don't cry in front of your coworkers. I think everything's changing for the better in in just our little specific pocket of comedy of what you're allowed to do, what you're allowed to wear, what you're allowed to say as a non-man. And you you did not cry in front of your coworkers, but you did, you know, kind of go off script and and say what you really felt. Um and which is what you were there to do, presumably, although no one thought that that's what it was where it was going to go. Did it what did it feel like to do that in that moment and 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 to have that be your big in front of the camera late night debut? Well, the comedian in me kicked in and I was just bummed that I didn't get a laugh. And I was like, why aren't people laughing at this like hyperbolic assessment of the current moment? But it also I knew at the time it wasn't hyperbolic. I said something else that I that I said something else that was even worse. What did you say that was worse? I, I'm 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 stumbling over whether or not to admit it, but the, we all came out and we weren't watching the news. They specifically didn't want us to watch the news so that we could have honest reactions uh, to this live on show uh, on Showtime uh, telecast or whatever you call it. But, yeah, it was very weird. That it was on Showtime. I remember. Yeah, well, CBS wouldn't do it. So uh, yeah, well, was, they were doing I, the news. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I turned to my friend Molly backstage and I said to her quietly, I feel like I'm about to give birth to a baby that's already dead. And she looked at me and laughed and she said, you should, you should say that, which is not what you should say. So I did two kind of abortion jokes right back. I mean, not abortion, miscarriage, but it, that's actually what it felt like. It felt like you have all this hope for the possibility for the future. I'm wearing white. I'm so excited. And then that hope is just gone. And it's such a dark, that was even darker than the get your abortions now comment. But I really felt that way. And and I and I said that. And I, I don't have the clip of Stephen's reaction to that line because that was so. And now that I'm a mummy, I think I can get away with a line like that without seeming callous because I've been through it and, you know, miscarriage which is one of the things that you're not ever supposed to joke about is so common and when you've gone through pregnancy you're like joke about everything joke about everything because you're normalizing it you're destigmatizing it you're making people who've gone through it feel less crazy or alone or like this is something rare uh but to men hearing that i think that was the first thing that just kind of buried me <laughs> and, then, and then after that, I'm like, the abortion, I just can't stop telling me like abortion joke. That's where I'm just like, la, 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 la. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you were this, you mentioned that you were, it was sort of a, a return to the late show for you because you had written for Letterman uh, mm-hmm. several years earlier. Um, and you tell a story in the book about how you learned that abortion was a banned word in Letterman's mm-hmm. late show that it, you, it was not going in a top 10 list, that word. And it was, no. he was not going to say it. Not even a period reference. Maybe that's why I had such, it had been bottled up from my time at Letterman. It just all poured out of me. Yeah. You're like, I can finally say what I want. Uh-huh. Um, and that was, you know, that was 12 years ago, I think, that you were there and that was the case. How much do you feel like has changed in in comedy in late night since then um, where 
you could there could be a show where you weren't allowed to talk about uh, periods, let alone abortion. I don't know. And I, I may be about to spill some tea that I shouldn't, but I uh, pitched a segment. I don't know if a lot has changed in late night to answer your question, because the people in late night haven't changed. And for the most part, and uh, I probably shouldn't say what I'm about to say, and maybe I'll ask you to edit it. But two things I want to say. One, I think it's funny that they are rebooting at midnight, like they're rebooting a show tied to Twitter, which is a dying platform or whatever. Maybe it'll be tied to TikTok, which is also a dying platform if <laughs> it gets regulated or maybe it'll be tied to whatever. But rather than give a woman a late night show, that is funny to me. Two, I pitched a segment. It actually, so Corden's team had reached out to me to see if maybe there was some stand-up bit I could do tied to the book coming out. And I haven't been in stand-up mode because I just had a baby, but I was like, what could be an interesting thing to do? And while I was thinking this, I had my my newborn physically strapped to me because the only way that he sleeps during the day is on my body. So I thought maybe I'll just do a set about how hard it is to be a mom with my baby strapped to my body. So for a little over a month, we were working on it back and forth. The booker would say, oh, we don't cut this cop joke. We don't want to make any cops in the audience upset, blah, blah, blah. That's how you typically work on a late night set, depending. Conan gave me so much bandwidth. I I loved, I don't think, I, I no other late night show gave me the time of day with stand up until Conan. And I'm forever grateful because those sets actually led to other jobs and they had, I I was completely uncensored, to be totally honest, on Conan. Corden had never done stand-up on the show. Don't really know, don't know James Corden at all. Uh, Lean different vibe. Don't hear, I, don't hear great things, but. Well, I'll get to the, yeah. <laughs> but it, I just, uh, it was kind of funny. I'm like, how, maybe, maybe this will work. Also, I'll have a baby strapped to me so I can kind of get away with saying whatever because yeah. the baby will be a, on my that's body. That's a funny concept. And it's a funny concept. Then I call it out. You know, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a mom, but I've always wanted to be a prop comic. Some of the jokes were from Lady Killer, my stand-up special, but others were newer things that I discovered just uh, having a baby. But I haven't also been doing a lot of stand-up because we're still in a pandemic and I have a baby and it's just exhausting. It's a lot. So I'm working on the set with him. I'm running it around LA, but again, I'm not running it with a baby on me. So I was put putting my first over my neck and saying, oh, picture this is a baby, but you can't really get a sense of how the jokes are going to do when you don't have her baby on you. And so I, I landed on a set that I thought was pretty good. And I was just about to tape it with the baby on me. And then I got feedback that the booker said, you know, we just, the show's ending and we just, this just feels like a big SU to the audience. Those were the words in the email. And it really bummed me out because it was a funny set. It was working. And to think that a new mom making jokes that work attached with her baby attached to her would like it's too, it would bum people out too much kind of made me angry because I think a it would have been cool b the show is ending so what do they have to lose and c I think it would have been great I don't think it would have made people angry I think it would have been relevant and hopefully funny and maybe baby would have helped me get SAG for the year <laughs> <laughs> which is all I really want you know uh, is it. I mean, why was it always for Corden? Why couldn't you do it somewhere else? Well, I'm trying to pitch it to one other place, but that's in the works. But it was for Corden because they had expressed interest. And so I was working with them. And I also don't, I mean, it would have to be an L.A. show because I don't want to take Baby across the country. I would say Baby's name, but I also don't want people to be like, like, hey, little Johnny, I'm friends with your mom. So I just yeah, don't want to get that on the DL. Um, yeah. 
But that's, I, I'm still rough. trying I mean, to figure it out. Yeah, but, but I that, just uh, it, does, it shows you how that maybe not much has changed in certain places. And then someone to cheer me up sent me an article. I'm just talking shit about James Gordon because he's going off the air, and I yeah, and it's pretty cut, safe territory to be honest. And they cut my bit after working with them for a month on it. Um, but he, uh, someone sent me an article about how. There is a situation on a flight where yes. a woman. This is a very famous story. This is such a good story where this woman had a screaming baby and James Corden was sitting next to her and he put his headphones on and turned away. And then he was praised for normalizing, not, not making a big deal out of a screaming infant and just ignoring it instead of complaining about it. And then the story, uh, another plot twist came out that it was actually his wife and kid which is such a good story and i do it's think kind of too good to be true it's like kind of like a perfect joke that is it's a perfect I, joke so i so to me i was like oh i didn't even know that about this guy and of course they're not going to be comfortable with me making jokes about postpartum depression with my baby <laughs> on me on their show of course that's not the vibe of their show i'm an idiot and i i do want to say one positive thing i do appreciate the booker for even thinking that there was a venn diagram intersection between my comedy and cordon's and there's not i guess yeah so not only are they not giving a, a woman a chance to host that show they're killing the show altogether and uh and doing something completely different and, and wouldn't even you know have someone like you perform on it so not not a great look it it is what it is. I can see the headline of this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be like know, Jenna Freeman yeah. talks shit about James Corden. No, we would never do that. <laughs> but good, and I so, I guess yeah, I, I like um, the idea of performing with your with your baby on you because uh, you performed your your stand up special, Lady Killer, pregnant, which has become in somewhat of a a trend in some ways that sort of Ali Wong started and Amy Schumer did and and you did, um, which shouldn't be that notable really, but um, it's interesting that. You know, you talked about how having the baby on you could change the way your jokes are perceived. Did you feel like being pregnant had that same effect in in your special, which is so much about, um, you know, abortion and, and these issues? Being pregnant is so disempowering in so many ways. But when you're on stage with jokes that, you know, have worked when you weren't visibly pregnant, it so it felt so empowering. And just to be like, you guys have to laugh because if you don't laugh, you're going to stress out the baby. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun performing. Pregnant. It was scary. I like performing in a space where audiences are scared, but you still know the comedy works. And if they don't laugh, it's not on you. It's on them. I love that to me is my favorite type of comedy because you feel like you're doing something. It, 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 to, it's the, the, the point in my mind, and everyone has different ideas about like the point of, of stand-up is to make people laugh. But what I love about stand-up is having real-time conversations with an audience where you are in control because you have the mic, but they're with you. I love that. I that that is my favorite thing about doing stand-up. It's it's completely unfiltered. You're you're communicating with people in a real way about relevant issues. I love that. I also love just being silly and making people laugh. That's a that's a thing that I should say to <laughs> be more palatable to people listening right now. But I love I love telling miscarriage jokes and making people feel uncomfortable, but not uncomfortable in a way that they're like that it's like shock value or that they're turned off. They're still engaged. That that I love. And I love that about stand up. And I don't think abortion's even a political issue as much as it is a branding issue. In Texas, for example, if instead of abortion, if we just called it fetus hunting. <laughs> 
day to take the kids to Planned Parenthood and go face hunting on the weekends. <laughs> Same with Florida. If we called abortion early retirement, <laughs> done and done, you know? Alabama. I have one for every state. <laughs> if in Alabama, if we called abortion the death penalty, the whole state would vote for it. The whole state would vote for it. Alabama state bird is the electric chair. Well, yeah, but I'm I'm really eager to see you perform more stand up. Um, you know, as a mom, talking about the the everything that's happened since you gave birth, because you know I know you I I read your tweets and you have a lot of thoughts and um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the one thing I was gonna say is is I I knew that being a mom was gonna suck, and and we can talk about that. I love my son so much, but just being a mom is really really hard. And it's hard for I and I have help like to not have help. I can't even imagine it on on every single level. And so the wanting the baby on me as a prop, which I don't want to do more than once on late night. You're not taking him on the road. Never. (laughs) But it is this thing of like, again, he wouldn't sleep unless I was rocking him on my body during the day for the first three months, four months. And I just think about every other woman in America or any other country doing this how do you get any work done? How do you go to the bathroom? How do you eat? How do you, I have an upright desk that I write on sometimes so that I can keep them on my body. And so to physically show that while you're doing stand-up, I thought was would be cool. And and to your point about like more women doing having stand-up specials when we're pregnant, I think it's just a tribute to the fact that more women are getting stand-up specials. And there's a point in a lot of our lives if we decide to have children or whatever that we are just by default pregnant we just happen to be pregnant while we're doing this thing that we do professionally and so you're seeing that a little bit more as Santa becomes a little bit more inclusive you're just seeing more pregnant people on the stage coming up jenna talks about the most unique and enlightening chapter of her new book for which she asked male comedians like john stewart bob odenkirk jim gaffigan and others the insulting questions that she and so many female comedians tend to get in interviews. Their reactions spoke volumes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our two previous episodes with Jenna Friedman, as well as conversations we've had with some of her collaborators like Sasha Baron Cohen, Samantha Bee, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. 
And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Jenna Friedman. So going back to the book, um, one section that I just feel like we have to talk about because it was fascinating to me and also made me sweat reading it was the uh, the part where you interviewed male comedians about uh, ask them questions that female comedians get in interviews, including I'm sure ones that you've gotten. Hopefully not from me, but uh, but I don't know. And it was I, I got really stressed out reading that. But I also I was uh, thinking I loved... about how every single male journalist, like why I'm not doing a lot of press, because everyone's afraid to talk to me because they think I'm going to like immortalize what they're saying in a my next book. But you've been great, Matt. Um, but yeah, that was that was such a a funny and fascinating idea. Uh, how did you decide that that was something that you wanted to do? I've thought about that for a while. I think a lot of female comedians get lobbed these questions and it's I think a lot of my comedy comes from flipping the script or what how it would be fun to ask mostly around the Louis stuff I did a very highbrow interview for the New Yorker I was going to bring this up yeah because I immediately thought of this yeah and Isaac is this revered interviewer and yeah Isaac Chotner some of the questions that he asked me and I I would not have talked about Louis because I would not have talked about Louis if it was for any other interview, but it was the New Yorker and and my second adult swim special was coming out. And I, I thought, you know, it's gross to be talking about Louie, but it's the New Yorker and I have somebody to promote. So I'm just going to do it. And I wrote down what I had to say. And I was like, maybe if I use the, an opportunity to say, let's move beyond Louie. It's not about Louie. Then it'll be okay, even though I'm part of the problem by talking about it. But some of the questions that he asked were so retrograde. And um, I just thought it'd be really funny to ask like my favorite male comedians those same Yeah, you got good people questions. too. <laughs> I almost got Norm Macdonald. I am going to look at a tweet that I sent him because it was like suspiciously, he was suspiciously like, yeah, I'll let, I'm busy right now, but let me get back to you in a month. He, doesn't, he didn't died. say yes to anything. I mean, yeah, that's... Uh... But he was like pretending to say yes because he knew he was going to die. Oh, and in no. my heart, I'm like, yeah. I love you, Norm. Oh. <laughs> I know. I'm trying. I'm actually looking to see if. But yeah, you you, you talked to uh, John Stewart and uh, Patton Oswalt, right? Jim Gaffigan, um, Bob Odenkirk. So Norm Norm goes. I was like, "Are you free to do a phone interview?" He goes, "Yeah, sure. Can't right now. Swamped with work, but when I can, I'd love to." And that was May 9th, twenty twenty one. I don't know if he died a couple months later, but he definitely knew he was going to die, and it was the yeah. nicest blow off oh, ever. And I yeah. thought, not knowing he was sick, I was. I thought that so uncharacteristically cool of norm <laughs> oh that would have been good but um but yeah i mean but the people you did talk to are, are great as well and i loved yeah. how how they each received the assignment very differently it seems like mm-hmm. um some people took it really seriously i feel like some people didn't really know what to do or how to react yeah, I mean, jim what was that like Patton, for you jim and Patton did it via email and so so much of the context was lost and uh, also, there were people that were that said that they would do it, and I sent them the questions, and then I never heard back. I'm not going to name names. Bob Odenkirk was a little too sincere for my comfort zone. I thought that he, <laughs> he was so sincere that I, he was the first person I talked to. Yeah, and you were like, "Is this going to work? Is this going to work?" And I asked the questions, like questions that we get, like you know, "Do you write your own material?" I just was so embarrassed asking him that. And I have them all recorded and 
It's so funny because my typical interview style, I'm like surgical and blunt and and I go for the kill. But these are all people that I love and admire. And even though they knew the premise of what I was doing, I felt I I I, I was so demure in my tone. I don't ever ask you yeah. those questions. <laughs> so I, I don't even know if I would release. I could release the audio, but it, it's so different than when I talked to McAfee. It's just such a different. And, and also when you're trying to get responses from people where you're you're just trying to ingratiate them you know i was like i don't know and so but it was really it was fun and i wish i i had recorded them because the video there there were moments like i wish i had had it on camera because i remember there was a moment when i was talking to john about something and then i completely pivoted to but back to louis and Mm -hmm. the his like guttural laugh at that (laughs) pivot was so fun what did what did you feel like you learned from the experience of of asking them these questions sort of in in how maybe men receive things differently or or how you know, what did you kind of take away from after you did all the interviews I thought it was funny that they all were offended by do you write your own material which is a question I stopped getting recently but that I used to get all the time and so many female comics just would get that question without even and we ourselves were probably had so much internalized misogyny that we didn't even think it was weird that somebody would ask us, do you write your own material? And then the Louis stuff was so fun to ask them all because. Yeah, because they don't get asked it, right? Well, and sometimes we get asked do, it but... all the time by Isaac Chotner. What? I mean, yeah, he, he did. He did give me a heads up. So I can't shit on it. <laughs> he told me he was going to ask about it. Yeah, but then of course it was the headline had Louis's name before your name. I think in the uh, which was tough. Yeah, and he also asked about like the Letterman sex scandal stuff, which was two years before, three years before I got there. So that was fun to feel that question too. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. Um, so then you also, you know, you have a sort of related. You have this section about um, canceled comedians and and that whole uh, that whole stuff and. Um, I thought you'd make a really interesting point about how gender impacts who gets canceled and why, and sort of the idea that for a a male or a male comedian, you have to do something to get canceled. And for a a woman, you only need to say something that that people don't like. Okay. So I finished this book over a year ago, which people who write books know that the timeline is insane. So now it will be wokeism, I think, is what people are talking about more than cancel culture. But at the time, everyone was talking about cancel culture. And they still are a little bit. And I I think I was like, I can't really talk about culture and comedy without talking about this elephant in the room thing that everyone's talking about. And it was the hardest essay to write because I do think in general, think pieces when you when you plant your flag in the sand or whatever of this is what I think about things. It's it exposes you to so much criticism. Whereas a satire or joke, you can kind of hide a little bit or mask what you're feeling. And so that was a tough essay, but I think my take was that this is a conversation that everyone's having ad nauseum. Some people are making money having it, and I want in on that too. So it was more like, this is a grift and I want to be a part of it, and I feel like that's <laughs> a good take. But then when I was really thinking about it and, and my own feelings about it, I do think, to your point, it is gendered a little bit that men will get canceled for things that they do and women get canceled for things that they say. And... uh I, I think about really Roseanne. I think about other people, but Roseanne was the one I kept coming back to as this as someone at her level. And I'm not, I don't want to be a Roseanne apologist because I thought what she said deserved uh, accountability and repercussions. And she's gone off the deep end in a lot of ways. 
but like her legacy and what she did in the 80s and 90s was so incredible and anti-racist and feminist. And so for her to just completely get axed because of a dumb tweet, maybe it was, you know, I think that it's touchy because again, and I talk about this in the book, like I'm not the person to weigh in on whether or not she should have had her show canceled. But I just do think like compared to the fact that Bill Cosby's still touring, it's kind of funny. Yeah. Although now she is kind of capitalizing on being canceled by releasing a Fox uh, news special. Sure. Sure. Good. Good for her. But but the fact that Bill Cosby is still touring. I mean, is his show still on Hulu? Is his show or his rerun? I mean, whatever. Like the Cosby show is incredible, too. But the fact that like Roseanne suffered those those penalties versus Cosby or versus like, you know, um, the the Louis one is a, is a tricky one, but um, yeah, you know, he's like, certainly still winning Grammys. Yeah, he and, won a Grammy. There yeah. you go. There you go. Like, come on, man. Yeah. Um, you also have a story in the book about uh, calling out a famous comedian for allegedly inviting female comedians to open for him on the road and then hitting on them in an inappropriate way. Um, hitting on them in an inappropriate way is. Uh, I think that that's. I think that we should talk about that phrasing because you could hit on someone in an appropriate way. And I think that this person hit on people, you know, hitting on someone in an appropriate way is just like hitting on them without being aggressively forceful. Right. And that on itself is potentially inappropriate because they are somebody you brought on to work yeah, for you. The power, and work dynamic. On. the power dynamic is weird. Um, so you uh, you decided not to name this person in the book, uh, but it's it's pretty easy to figure out who it is. Uh, who you know, do you think it been... is? It, it might not be easy to figure out who it is. Who do you think it is? Well, online it's Bill Burr. When you look up, but the that's original. not so. Is that Bill... inaccurate? It is inaccurate. That was not Bill Burr that I was talking about okay. at all. Okay. And it wasn't so. Bill Burr reacted to it, but did that get conflated? I mean, or did I misread what? What's... You didn't misread it. You didn't misread it. I think the larger point that I was trying to make with that tweet is that. This is endemic in our community. I personally have, well, I'm not going to talk about my own personal thing right now. But so, I mean, it, it, it's in our world and it, again, is changing. If you and just this is just stand up to become a better stand up, you go on the road with a better stand up. And when the majority of headliners are male for women to break through Men have to bring us on the road with them. And a lot of times when you're on the road, like to cut, it's not making a lot of money at first. Sometimes you have to share hotel rooms, like people go party on the road. It's just a really, it's almost impossible even for a, the most morally, uh, I don't know, Anna, I don't know the word for an upstanding uh, feminist male comic if you're going to bring a female comic on the road with you, if you have a girlfriend, maybe she'll find it weird. If you have a girlfriend, maybe she won't find it weird, but maybe other people will assume you're having sex or something. Or, you know, there's just there's just so many. It's just it's mentorship. But in an industry that has no HR where you're just it's so hard for us to get a leg up, no pun intended, in stand up in this context. and so. The person who was hitting on female comics, I don't even think that that was out of bounds. He was single. They were single. 
He invited them on the road. It's not out of bounds to, you know, want to have a relationship with someone you work with. But I think what I was trying to introduce with that one tweet was that maybe we should think about it being out of bounds. And maybe because we don't have an HR department and uh, because we rely on each other to kind of know to police our own behavior. And I was headlining that weekend in Vancouver, so I was feeling a little cocky. I was like, hey, and I didn't gender that tweet, too. I said, hey, headliners, male and female and non-buyer, whatever you are. Like, let's think about these places of work environments. And when we take a younger comic on the road, let's let's be appropriate. Even if the younger comic wants to hook up with you, even if it is sexual, like, I know I'm not fun. <laughs> I know this isn't a fun thing, you know, but, um, you know, I, I, I'd have like, yeah, I just had like younger guy comics look to me for advice and maybe they were physically attracted to me. But in my mind, I'm like, this is a younger comic in their career. I remember when I was a younger comic in my career. I'm going to just not, I'm going to shut it down and not, not, you know, engage that, you know, it's just, it, it takes a level of maybe, I don't know if the word is maturity. I don't know if the word is prudence. Like I know that guys, male comics listening, this will make their ears itch. Cause it's me being like, you just like keep your dick in your pants when it's a younger female comic. If you, you know, I don't know. In other industries, you have HR departments and you have rules and we don't. And I'm not saying across the board, every case, you shouldn't do that because I've dated comics, you know, and I've dated never really any comics more successful than me. <laughs> but, but I but I think that, yeah, I don't it it's it's a hard conversation because I know that I seem like I not cool being like, guys, can you just like try not to fuck your female comics like they're just trying to work and or even if they're not just trying to work, even if they're trying to sleep their way to the top, which uh, Gloria Steinem said that if you could sleep their way, if. If women could sleep our ways to the top, there'd be more women at the top. Um, but it just, it's, a, it, so that's all I was getting at as I mumbled through this question. I was just trying to say like, let's, let's reframe things and maybe, you know, f- fuck a fan on the road, which I could get in trouble for saying, but someone who's in this industry trying to make it, it's like, try to, it would be cool if you could just be a mentor with no expectation or just have a little more maturity and, you know, when I was a young female comic, like you get the memo pretty quickly that like, uh, like, you know, these guys have more power and it's, and some very rarely, but sometimes like they'll help you if you engage in a sexual relationship with them. So it's enticing, you know, across the board. But um, I don't know. I think it complicates things and makes it a lot harder for younger people with less power, regardless of their sex or gender, to thrive when you have this like weird sexual uh, subjects in every interaction that is like a kind of power dynamic or almost every interaction. Well, I didn't mean to besmirch uh, Bill Burr, but I was also, I was going to no, say that I, I, I was surprised that uh, I, I kind of didn't think it was him also because you describe him as a progressive comedian, I think. So <laughs> well, it was just funny there. that Bill <laughs> tweeted that because he was like, he was like calling himself out. And I, I, and I was like, this isn't even about you at all. But he yeah. heard. But, but he, he heard. He thought tweet. it was about you. Think he? It was that he thought it was about him. I mean, I'm sure he, like every other male comic, has had such. You know, I'm sure he did. And then he just kind of he kind of ducked out and didn't engage me. And then I was like, let's talk about this because I want to talk about this, not in a way where I want to blame anyone. Like I'm not trying to get anyone canceled. Um, I also think you know canceling I talk about is like whatever. But I just I I think it's really cool if we could actually talk about this. Because we're not talking about it. And I think it's it's a lot easier for people to just be like, shut up. <laughs> Burn the witch. 
we want to keep fucking everyone, you know, stop. Yeah. And then you, you do have that chapter uh, about one of the good ones where you talk about Jeff Garland, which I thought was so interesting that you, you know, decided to really put that in there and, and talk about how he was supportive of you in a, in a positive way, um, despite his own potential cancellation that's happening. Um, what was what was your experience with him and why did you want to include that? Well, yeah, I mean, he was one of the first people who really helped me in a meaningful way. Uh, and in, in a way that was, I, I use the term avuncular uncle-like because there was no creepiness uh, from my experience associated with him. He hasn't read that chapter. I did send him the book. I hope he likes it. It was very honest and vulnerable on my part, but I don't, I hadn't run it by him or anything. Um, and I'm not giving him a path, you know, I'm, I'm giving no one passion. <laughs> but from my personal experience, when I was 25, Jeff Garland was really nice to me. And he helped me when I opened for him in New York. Um, a manager who is a big time manager, I think, saw the set and I started working with his company. And, you know, then someone younger at his company fired, like, got, uh, dropped me as a client. And then a couple weeks later, I ended up letting I think, reached out to them about a packet I submitted. And then this manager who worked with Jeff, I'll just say his name because it's really obvious. David Miner was instrumental in me getting Letterman. And it was through, an, I think, an introduction with Jeff Garland. But what happened was I had submitted two packets to Letterman. Um, I showed up for the interview. It was a hectic day. They said, well, and we send her home and we'll maybe talk to her later. And then Minor called them and was like, no, you guys got to talk to her now. But I think about Jeff Garland as someone who really, he helped me get my foot in the door in a meaningful way. And so as I was writing this book, while the stuff was coming out about the Goldbergs, it was funny. And I thought I have to kind of capture this because also on a larger point, I do think, you know, it's easy for us to say this is a good one. This is the bad one. And it's not the case. Louis, for example, always kind to me. He was kind to me and uh, didn't jerk off in front of me. I mean, that's like the bar, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. If that's what we're saying is kind, yeah. <laughs> that's what we are saying is kind. <laughs> no, I think it's it's really hard when, because I've had that same experience, including, I think, with Jeff Garland, where he's someone who's been really supportive of of me in this podcast. Um, and we've, you know, talked, you know, both, uh, you know, on the podcast and offline and, and there's other people like that too that that I you know hear really bad things about, and I'm like, but they've always been really nice to me. And it's like that's not really it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it does mean something. But it, I think that's the thing that you're trying to capture in that chapter. I also think we because we're all online and we all have points of view, and because we're all angry about a lot of things, uh, increasingly so. When someone does something unsavory or out of bounds, we have a tendency to just write them off. A certain segment of us. Another segment gloms onto them and then they become even more, like Chappelle is a perfect example, kind of folk hero, famous status in another world. But I think if, um, Dane Gillis, I think is a good example of this because he was written off in one context so swiftly, but then now he's like a folk hero in another segment of the population i watched his latest special that he put on youtube or that special that he put on youtube and i thought it was excellent and i also think that that when somebody's written off by like the quote-unquote like hipster or liberal 
like PC community, I do think it causes a certain segment to like retreat and go further right wing. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Then again, there are, you know, it, it, it's just, it's hard, it's hard to talk about this stuff and it's hard to, you know, cause like, for example, when you get to Louie, Louie's apology did feel like it fell on deaf ears because of like how it was written and how narcissistic it was and how he didn't actually like put money back into the pockets of the women that he, whose careers he maybe yeah. and then he, heard he did along a, the he way. He did a special called Sorry, where he put sorry and lights behind him, kind of making fun it's of like the trolly, idea of apologizing. Yeah, it's like, it's like trolling instead of like looking inwards and actually trying to be better. Um, and, but I think, it, I mean, I think it's hard. The one thing I haven't seen is like a, is um, like a, uh, I don't know, this is the bad joke about just kind of like crisis management for like people who've been canceled PR companies like spring up in the wake of this because no one really has answers as to like how to, how to handle this. And then when you have people like Al Franken being canceled that are like completely seemingly like political um, hit jobs, you know, it's just, it's just like, it's the culture that we live in and it's kind of complicated and confusing and probably getting even more so. And, uh, but podcasts like yours, Matt, are how we are able to have these conversations. Exactly. (laughs) Um, so before, when you were on this podcast, uh, the last two times we hadn't been doing this, this final segment. So I thought we could do it, uh, with you, um, to do a, a quick, uh, lightning round of sorts. Um, it's called the first laugh and we're, so we can, we'll lighten things up a little bit cause it's gotten a little dark. Has it? No, <laughs> That's so I unexpected. So. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't I even talk have, about my mom. I would never have thought, oh. <laughs> yeah. So going back to the earliest part of your life, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard? Something that you can remember from very early on that you just thought was really funny? Oh, my sister was the comedian and I used to repeat everything she said. And then my mom was really funny. So I remember my mom, this is so not funny, but <laughs> I live. I grew up in Haddonfield, New Jersey, which is a small town. And there were three elementary schools. My sister went to one. I went to another one. And we were zoned for the third one. And my mom would tell people that and laugh. And so I was like, ah, like, I would be like, my sister goes to Tatum. I go to Central. I couldn't say our words. I was in kindergarten or first grade. I go to Central and we'll, we're zoned for Lizzie Haddon. <laughs> not at all funny. I just, and that might not be the first one. That's just one that just came up. I, I think when you're little, you parrot what other people think is funny. And then that's what you think is funny. If that makes sense. Yeah, you're just, definitely, you're just yeah. like, you don't know why it's funny or you don't know whether why it's, it's even funny. funny, but it seems like people think it's funny. So it must be funny. This is also, maybe you cut this if it's bad, but um, I also wrote the first, one of the first jokes I told I was trying to entertain my sister and her friend and they were doing their nails. I was maybe and I was maybe like five or six. I knew how to read and they had nail polish remover. And I looked at it and I was like, Polish remover. And I smelled it and then I pretended to die. <laughs> Polish remover. <laughs> like it was like an ethnic cleansing joke. Yeah. And they thought that that was so funny. And that That's was pretty like the advanced. first. Yeah. <laughs> I am part Polish. So I guess I can make that yeah, joke. You're allowed. Um, so that was your, your first, uh, your first joke as a kid. What about your first joke that you wrote as a standup that you felt like really worked that you were like, Oh, I think I might have something here that, that is connecting with people. Oh, how much time we have. There's a story that I didn't include in the book that I, it just, cause it, we have so, as much time as you have. So, okay. So the, so the first joke that I think put me not on the map, but I got into the Chicago's funniest person contest with this joke, um, 
a friend of mine worked for the an alderman in Chicago, and it was her job to look through people who got like public urination offenses for like peeing behind Wrigley Field and making sure that they didn't end up on the sex offender registry for those. And I thought that that was so funny. So I sat down. I'd been doing improv for like a year and a half or two years. So I was kind of comfortable with like performing. I kind of knew where the laughs would be. And I wrote like a five minute segment about being a sex offender and being arrested for public urination. And then I practiced it and I practiced it. And I had an act out where I knocked on the door and be like, hi, I'm Jenna, the sex offender in 5B or whatever. Um, and it was really tight. And I did a bringer show in New York and I got a great tape out of it. And I submitted it to Chicago's Funniest Person Contest with my first like month into doing stand-up. It was kind of beginner's luck because there were people from Aspen recruiting for the Aspen Comedy Festival. I got an Aspen audition off of it. I had to write another two minutes of material because the audition was seven minutes and I didn't have seven minutes. So I think at the audition in New York, I just got like drunk and like <laughs> like tried to be funny. It was not a good audition. But that little tape got for a new comment, got me so much like exposure. And then a day before Chicago's Funniest Contest, which Hannibal won that year, the editor of Time Out Chicago, who also shit on my uh play that I talk about in the book. Yeah, your American Girl doll play. Yeah, called The Worst Comedic of Town in 2007, which had, wasn't even a category. I'm ranting now. But he called me and said, we here at Time Out think you stole that joke. And it broke my heart. It was a, it was a joke that I think a lot of people are doing because when you're first starting out in comedy, you're doing kind of like, oh, I'm a sex offender for being arrested for public urination. You know, I think even Sarah Silverman had a premise on yeah, her show it about was a, that. It was a premise, not a that they were that maybe had other people would use, but not the joke. And this was 2004, October 2004. And I do think there was another comic, and I'm blanking on his name, who did a similar thing where he was like a sex offender and did the act out. But to me, that's like, that's a common thing. If you're a sex offender, you know, you have to introduce yourself to your neighbors. So, uh, and for like, you know, it just... So I remember then thinking that I stole the joke because it was a parallel thought, very, very similar joke to someone else. And then I was so devastated. And then I did the joke in the thing anyway to be like fuck you i'm doing this joke but it was like heartbreaking thinking that and you already have imposter syndrome to think to like be called a joke thief before you even like done much stand-up so like yeah you have nothing like if someone called me a joke thief now i'd like laugh because i yeah uh i i tell the most uh unpalatable unsuccessful <laughs> jokes yeah. it would be a really bad business model for someone to steal that but um then it was really devastating and I it gave me empathy for anyone who's ever called a joke thief because of parallel thought and it was such a good foray into this world. Um, but that was like the first joke and I have it's online now and it doesn't fully hold up, but it was like this five minute set about, you know, being arrested for being a, a sex offender. So um, I was recently arrested, actually, uh, for public urination. <laughs> pretty embarrassing, um, especially in the state of Illinois, where uh, public urination is actually considered a sexual offense. I'm totally serious. My face is on the Illinois State Sexual Predator Registry for peeing behind the bleachers after a Cubs game. No, it's fine. It's a cute picture. It's, um, it's the same one. It is a cute picture. Uh, it's the same one that I put on my MySpace account. <laughs> Do you have a story or memory about the first time you met one of your comedy heroes? Yeah, I, I think when I worked for John Stewart, Stewart, there was this trial period um, before you get hired because the field producer job was so hard. I couldn't even look him in the eye. I admired him so much. I was so starstruck and I didn't want to show that I was starstruck because I 
wanted him to take me seriously and like hire me. And he was so nice. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> I love, I mean, I he was my comedy hero. Yeah. <clears throat> Finally, I, I ask my guests if there is a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened. I'm sure there are some in the book that we haven't talked about, but uh, <laughs> but could be yeah, from the well, book the, or not. I mean, from the, the definitely the get your abortions now thing, I, that is so yeah. funny to me now. It's for <laughs> as horrifying as it is. I think that's like the best one. If I could if I could add another one. I mean, that to me, that that's why it's the prologue to the book. I mean, that the book is called Not Funny for a variety of reasons. That really encapsulates it. The one where you, uh, I, I was thinking of the one maybe where you, uh, where you broke your teeth. Um, probably not funny at the time. No, not funny. Is it funny now? No, that was <laughs> awful. It's not funny. I, oh, that was a horrible experience. Um, there is something funny. One other little anecdote. Uh, so part of how the book, came to be and part of why it's called not funny the other reason i talk about the book was something i don't mention in the book um uh i had tweeted i had these like fake breaking news tweets that i was doing where um i got in a little trouble for some of them being like donald breaking news donald trump has covid because he wasn't wearing a mask anywhere and then like a couple months later he got covid and i was like see but i got suspended from twitter for that but there was one Fake news, yeah. But there was one uh, during the, I had read about the McCluskeys, which were that St. Louis couple who were um, pointing guns at protesters, how they were speaking at the RNC. And I thought that was so wild and weirdly hilarious. So I had tweeted breaking news, Brock Turner, Stanford rapist, woman or whatever, speaking at the RNC. I also tweeted bat who gave world COVID speaking at the RNC. So I thought people would know that I was joking. But that one tweet got picked up and was everywhere. And it was in some newspaper. I took a screenshot of it. I still have it. But some they were like, Stanford professor does, says comedians tweet about Brock Turner. Not funny. And um, Well, that's, yeah. If a Stanford professor doesn't think it's funny, then that's right? how you know it's not funny. The AP picked it up. Reuters picked it up. They're like, this. he's actually not speaking at the RNC. But the fact that people thought he was was so funny. And then so um, my lit agent, their agency also represents... The woman who wrote a book about the experience, her name is Chanel Miller. She had a book coming out about about that and the aftermath of that assault. And he emailed me and he said, thank you for getting his name trending. Her book is on sale now. And I thought that that was really funny. And then he said, have you thought about writing a book? I think we <laughs> could sell one now. And I had never, I, I, it's always been like the, in the background, but it takes, you know, so much time and energy daunting. But then there was like another wave of the pandemic. So the timing just worked. And I had this kind of, I'm not bipolar, but I shouldn't say manic episode, but I was just like, I'm just going to, so I wrote a whole pitch in like a week and then we actually were able to sell it. And I don't mean to bring a horrible story of someone being assaulted, making it about me and my books. <laughs> we, we cut this, but, yeah. but it was not funny. And that was partly how like the genesis for the book, which is so fucked up. Between 9-11 and other people getting assaulted, I'm really making a case for myself as being this like likable <laughs> comedic voice. Um, well, I'm so glad that you came back on the podcast again for the third time. And uh, this was this was really great. And I'm, I'm glad to, to talk to you about all this stuff because I think it is really important and, you know, just really relevant to uh, to what I like to talk about on this show. And um, yeah, I, I love the book. And I think anyone who... Uh, is interested in comedy uh, should read it. Thank you so much, Matt. I was probably more uncensored this time because I am tired. Um, That's always so good for interviews. <laughs> yeah, for, for you. 
hopefully nothing I say is uh, upsets people too much. No, you would never want to upset anyone, right? No, never. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I re- and the fact that you like the book, I mean, that's all that matters. People who I love and respect, appreciating my work, that's what it's all about. Well, as always, I really enjoyed that conversation with Jenna Friedman, and I hope you did too. Her new book, Not Funny, is available to purchase starting today, April 18th, wherever you get your books. And we will put a link to it in the description for this episode as well. You can also stream Jenna's latest stand-up special, Lady Killer, on Peacock, and watch all episodes of her series, True Crime Story, Indefensible, on AMC+. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear the show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.